This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here, just myself and Dr. Wang today. We are so excited that interview season has come again to neurosurgery and the neurosurgical match. And this year, for the first time since uh, the COVID pandemic, neurosurgery programs have been given the option to return to a fully in-person interview for residency. And I don't know about you, Dr. Wang, but I am very excited to get to meet people face-to-face again. Yeah, I agree with you, JP. I, uh, we had our first of two batches of applicants come through this past week. Uh, we interviewed them. Uh, my wife actually uh, and I entertained them at our home uh, afterwards. Uh, it was not an official event, but it was nice to get to know them even better unofficially. Uh, and it and everybody I asked has preferred this, even even though I know I think about half the programs are still doing virtual interviews largely, right? Yes, and I, I will say the uh, for anyone who's been to Miami, the unofficial events at your house are legendary for reasons good and sometimes ill, but always fun. Um, but to to my understanding, this year programs were given the option to do fully in person or fully virtual. But the one thing you can't do is some kind of hybrid where some people are on Zoom and some people are in person. And I would have to yeah. agree with you. I mean, you and I have both been outspoken on the show for the past couple of years that we miss the in-person interaction. And I think not, not only us, but many people agree that there's just something about the human factor that you lose out on when you get 20 minutes on a Zoom call with somebody instead of a dinner and drinks afterwards and spending the day in the same room as them, right? Yeah. And, and there's so many elements of that. One, of course, is that you know that when you're doing these interviews, a lot of the interviewers are probably multitasking, if you want to call it that. They're doing other stuff. They're checking their emails. Uh, but this commits you on both sides to be um, to be engaged. And I, I was just helping, actually, a young um, medical student, a fourth-year student who's applying an OBGYN. And um, she, her sister, actually, is a girlfriend of one of my kids. And um, she asked if, if I would help her because she's applying in her fourth year and all the interviews are virtual and she thinks she's doing really poorly. And, mm-hmm. and not that she's not a great student and a fantastic you know, person to meet. Uh, but when I got on the, the practice session, I actually felt like she was doing quite well. And I, I asked her, like, why do you think you're like, why are you feeling you're not like you're not doing really well? Because I think you're interviewing spectacularly. And she goes, well, you know, it's funny because like, when I answer the questions, they're just kind of like this dead silence. And it, it struck me that a lot of that probably wouldn't be the case in person. Right. I mean, we know from personal experience doing interviews and you and I know from personal experience doing these virtual podcast episodes that we do that when you're not looking someone face to face in the same room, you lose a lot of the natural rapport. You lose a lot of conversational rhythms. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I've seen people in, in psychology or in media talk about this even outside of uh, medical and residency interviews. But when you're on a Zoom call, the natural tendency to look at someone in the eye puts you looking at your screen. So then you're not looking at your camera. So their perception is not that you're looking them in the eye, which seems like such a trivial thing. But we know that eye contact is very important for rapport building, getting a sense of trust and confidence. And so even the tiniest little detail like where you're looking versus where the camera is picking up your eyes can really throw off some of these innate human signals we have when you're meeting someone for the first time. Exactly. I mean, so, so one of the first things I said to this medical student, and, and I'm not being critical because she's spectacular, 
is I asked her, do you, are you tired? Like you look tired to me. And we had to make a camera adjustment and it changed everything, right? Um, wow. The level of interest, if you will, like you said, the engagement with the eyes. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I do think let's take a moment and acknowledge the pros and the, the plus sides of the virtual interviews. I think the biggest point would be financially. And my, my chairman, Rich Byrne, constantly makes this point. He was a big fan of virtual interviews for the sheer fact that it meant the applying medical students saved thousands of dollars. And I know as someone who went through the second to last pre-pandemic interview season, it is a real investment to, you know, hopscotch your way across the country uh, with all the flights, the hotel rooms, et cetera, on top of ever increasing medical school bills. So just to, to tip our hat to the other side of things, there obviously is a benefit to some students and not having to fly all, all over the country for a few months. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, second that, although I do think that the investment, although it seems large, is immensely worth it for neurosurgeons. I don't know if it'd be true for podiatrists or psychiatrists who, that, you know, the, the income level they have when they're done is not the same. But when, when you look back on how much an average neurosurgeon makes per year and you say, wow, like, you know, the decision of where you train partly hinged on this, it's like, that's some, something that people would spend on a bottle of wine, like the whole process. You know, once you're an attending neurosurgeon, I don't mean to be dismissive. That's just a reality, right? Like, you would never say that about a professional NFL player, right? And, and, and you know, they're, they're, they don't necessarily make any more than neurosurgeons. Uh, in fact, most of them make much less. And they will, you know, have to fly frequently to different things. And I just, I think that, you know, you have to put it in perspective. I get it. The young people kind of rule the world now. And they think that this is their crisis now. There's a lot of ways to balance this out. And, and we saw the effect, right? I mean, we, we looked at those, those years when it was just interviews and all that stuff that happened with um, select people taking up all the slots, right? There's probably, yeah. and I'm not criticizing them, but maybe like 20 or 30 people chewed up just an inordinate number of spots because it's too easy. They could do 60, 60 sets of interviews if they wanted. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting to track our field's response to that phenomenon. Now, um, not yet limiting the number of interviews, but uh, limiting the number of signals that applicants can send this year to 25. Um, I know that last year during the interview cycle, and I wanted to remind all of our listeners, especially those of you in medical school or currently entering this match cycle, we did an extensive amount of content last year um, around this time. One, talking about the interview process, which obviously is updated now, but two, talking about the new signaling function and how applicants were being advised to use it, how program directors and chairs and leadership were viewing those signals. Um, and also, you know, now that interview season is opening up, but I think the majority of interviews are still ahead of people at this stage in the game. Uh, in spring of, of 2022, and, and for a long time around early last year, you and I, Dr. Wayne, went through and systematically tried to interview and spotlight as many programs in North America as we could. And so if you're an applicant this year who has uh, an interview coming up maybe next month, and it's a place in a city you've never been with a program you haven't visited before, but you're interested, I would strongly encourage you to look back into our catalog from around that time, because there's a very good chance we've got a 10 or 15 minute interview with the program director of that institution talking about what makes them tick, the kind of people they're looking for, and what their core value sets are. It can be a really strong, strong way to prepare for an interview at that department. Yeah, I, I would second that. I, preparation is so key. 
when you're when you're when you're in such a high stakes game as as uh, the applicants are this year. But let me ask you about the signaling. How do you feel like it's going? Like how you know you're you're obviously doing this at Rush and you're seeing what's happening. And I you know I suspect that you don't want to interview people that uh, aren't signaling to you, right? That's the new mantra. Yeah, I think that um, speaking in broad terms, there's a very high concordance with um, if an applicant signaled us and if they got an interview, which I think is common sense. And I would expect to see that across the board, especially now that there's more signals available. You know, last year, I think the number was eight last year. It was a lower number for how many signals you could send. And so it would be silly to expect everyone interviewing at your program to have signaled you when the applicants only have so many to use. but now that they can send up to 25, I think you're going to see a much higher correlation between if someone is interviewing at our program and if they signal us. And I'll be very interested to have more of these conversations as the interview season goes by. And then in the spring, once we find out where everybody wound up to see exactly how programs interpreted the signals this time around and how much that predicted the eventual match. I mean, it's very interesting because there is a cost to apply, is there not? There is. Yeah. And is it does it vary by the number of programs you apply to? It does. I'll I'll be honest, I don't remember offhand, but there it's it's a cost per program up to a certain number. And then after that number the cost uh decreases, I believe. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean the signal now is almost a de facto application, right? So if you didn't signal anybody, uh or you, if you I'm sorry, if you didn't signal a particular program, you didn't list me or twenty five, then they're probably not gonna interview you. And you think about how this plays out, it's, it's actually ends up canceling itself out because let's say you're not as strong an applicant, right? And you say, well, I'm going to apply to every program in the country, let's say, for example. And then who are you going to signal? Like if you, if you signal the top programs, then your chance of interviewing with them isn't necessarily much higher. But if you signal the lower end programs, you're not going to get an interview at the top level programs. And it's right. very interesting to me because... In the end, if the idea is to have a more egalitarian distribution, I don't really know if it accomplishes it. I'm not trying to be negative on the signaling, but I feel like that's very much about um, a sort of a scarcity mindset. I, I kind of liked it better when people just were just put in the mix. And if you if you felt you were weaker, you need to apply to 50 places that, that you could just do that. And then you could have a, a even crack at each one of them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it is interesting because this uh, the availability and then the limited number of signals that an applicant can send is, as you say, it's almost a de facto limit in how many applications you can send out. They'll still allow you to send as many as you want and pay the fee to send as many as you want, but they have almost definitionally made it such that you can only have 25 effective applications. And so um, I don't know that that's entirely bad. You know, again, Leading into the uh, pandemic and those last few pre-pandemic ap applications, we were talking about it at the time, and everybody and their brother was publishing uh, studies about this with these sharp, sharply uh, steep curves about the number of programs places uh, uh, that applicants would apply to each year. And it really was uh, a runaway slope on that curve. So one way or another, I think we were approaching the maximum for a student's number of programs applied to each year. And so either sheer physical reality of transport or what eventually became packing in Zoom calls on a calendar or some top-down curtailing like has actually happened with the signals 
one way or another, the the number of app, uh, programs per applicant had to be reined in. Yeah, I but I feel like it penalizes the weaker applicant. I, I still feel this way, and I know that the, that you know some of the folks who set this up are going to push back on it. You know, because if you think about it, let's take the finances out. If you're if let's assume there are weaker and stronger applicants, that's an assumption, right? And let's assume that the stronger applicants. Um, they're, they're coming from more prestigious schools. They have higher board scores. They have more publications, you know, whatever, right? They, they, they have right. more extracurricular activities that are appealing. Those people know where they're applying to, and it's going to be 20 programs or whatever. And they're typically going right. to apply to their home program and, it, and what was perceived as the top programs, right? And there's no bad programs out there, just FYI, right? But then if you, so those people are that population of people. And then for the folks that are, um, Let's just say they're not as competitive. Let's just say. Um, and I know that that could be defined different ways, but, but you get the gist. Um, right. They're now really limited because they have to make a really conscious choice about just not even planning to make a reach attempt at any of the upper tier programs. Like they're basically, you're basically creating a class society. You're saying if you go to University of you know, Mississippi, and I'm not bagging on Mississippi, but let's just say, okay. And then what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to apply to the Brigham. You're going to apply to Johns Hopkins. No, you're not even going to waste a signal there. And you could make the argument they shouldn't anyways because they're not going to match there. But do we really know that? And and it creates this environment where and I know that um, people say, well, you know, you shouldn't be applying to that many places anyways, like you're saying. But I feel like it really does create this this barrier. Like if you're if it really raises the stakes for the people who are not in the top, you know, 30 applicants in the country. You're right. I mean, I, I think it's the law of unintended consequences uh, in, in full effect. We had similar conversations about losing the step one score as a metric by which to compare uh, applicants across the country, where if you imagine yourself in the position of coming from, again, however you want to phrase it, a less prestigious medical school, maybe a place that doesn't have a department of neurosurgery. So you don't have very strong home letters. You didn't have a good experience leading up to your away rotations to prepare you to perform excellently on those away rotations. So maybe the letters you get from your externships aren't as strong. You don't have as much opportunity to do research. What was the one way that when compared to everyone else in the country, you really could stand out and show your quality, a standardized test with a score that everybody took no matter if you were at a medical school with no neurosurgical department or at UCSF. And similarly, I think this top-down curtailing of the number of programs a, a student can apply to, as you're saying, is it has the best intentions. And for the reasons we've already talked about, there are pluses for it. And it levels the playing field, perhaps from a financial standpoint. But there are these, these very real unintended consequences that uh, limit the less fortuitous applicants going into the process. Um, well, I, I you know, I, I'm going yeah. to get in big trouble for saying this, but I have to, to go out on a limb and say, I'm not sure they're unintended because the people making the rules about how this plays out, they are at the prestigious programs by and large. Mm. And if you <laughs> think about it, we've actually changed now. When I was uh, applying, this is a long time ago, people did a sub-internship at places you wanted to go and train at, right? Yeah. And they could be programs that were really prestigious or they could be programs where you grew up in, in that town or whatever. 
But now people are largely doing sub eyes to get the letters, right? right? And so there is a monopoly on where people are doing sub internships. There's no, there's no question about that as you look at it now. And we could name the places. I don't want to create enemies just at the most powerful programs. But if I were part of a program that was not as prestigious, I would kind of look at this askance and say, this is becoming a sort of a, a tiered system. And, and I, I, I've always felt strongly that there are no bad neurosurgery programs. And I still feel that way. And I feel like this is, this is not the unintended consequence. This is the consequence. Although the, the reasoning behind it, as you said, may be couched and may in fact be well-intentioned, the end result is the same, which is that there is a tier. There is a tier of places where people go, you better go do a sub-I at these places to get that letter. Yeah, I mean, whether it's an ivory tower or a walled garden, I, I think you're right that uh, whether or not it's manufactured, there always are tiers and there are always are circles within circles in, in any field and community. I, I do think it is interesting that you see this phenomenon of people going to get the letter, even if they're not necessarily auditioning for that job. The other side of that coin, of course, are the handful of programs that Again, we won't name, but we all know of them where if you don't do a sub I at the program, the odds of you matching there are extraordinarily low. And so it's a, a, a kind of twofold inside baseball kind of system. Um, well, which, they're only uh, about, look, we just interviewed 25 people, right? And there's only about nine places anybody did a sub I at. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Have you seen that? I mean, you, I mean, there's only about nine places. Right. And so it's the same letters floating around with the, the same verbiage and all the same recommend, which is strange if you think that, you know, if if, as you say, if there's nine or 10 chief sub eyes that everyone goes to, that means that the letters they're getting and the recommendations they're getting are all coming from the same sources. It's very interesting. Same people. And those are the same people that set up the system. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder then if, if we can think about the, you know, you just had your first interview day at the University of Miami. We just had our first day here at Rush. Um, for this season, and it's our first time back in person. How did it go uh, at Miami? What was the experience like? Was it was it rusty getting back in the swing of things, or was it just a blast? How how did uh, how did your group execute the, the the first time back? No, it was great. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, uh, on a positive note, I feel like the future of neurosurgery is going to be very secure because the quality of applicants, at least on paper. Um, is really spectacular. I mean, the folks that are coming through, the, the, their accomplishments, uh, and granted, you know, CVs are much more curated now than they were in the past, but still, the level of accomplishment, the level of um, maturity of the group, really shockingly good. Um, very, very, very impressed with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to agree. Our first interview day, I was actually stunned because you know, thinking back to interview seasons of, of years past, there's there's always a couple people on the trail that you hear about. There's, you know, the, the legends of Blue Label guy that ordered Blue Label at every dinner and Magic Trick guy that was doing card tricks as part of his shtick on the road. But at least this first batch that just came through for us, we were scratching our heads and wondering just, you know, well, there's no red flags. It, it seems to just be a group of qualified, regular people that want to work hard. It's almost disappointing because there's nothing to laugh about. Yeah, it's it's really uh, people are so well tuned now to what uh, at least what we're looking for. I think it's 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 almost um, it's almost scary. But I, I you know I, I I do worry about this trend though. I think, and I, I don't want to get back to this too much because it was such a great experience this past 
couple days with these young young men and women um, about I wonder if on the on the on the flip side if this doesn't present an opportunity where if you are if you if you if you really commit to let's call it a second or third tier program I hate even using that verbiage because it it really implies that there there are truly tiers but let's say one of the places where they don't get a lot of sub eyes then maybe your chances are so much higher so long as those programs aren't susceptible to the same brainwashing, right? That like, oh, well, you did a sub-I at this really prestigious place, so now we're going to take you, right? As opposed to someone who did a sub-I with us. Uh, it, it brings up so many elements of, um, of I don't want to call it disparity, because that's the wrong word for it, but uh, gaming of the system, right? Yeah, so how do you suss those things out? I mean, when you, I imagine that your interview process is, like most where, you know, there, there's one-on-one -on -one or maybe a couple attendings in a room for the individual interviews and there's group interactions with the residents, you have such a limited amount of time with the person sitting down across from you. And aside from everything else that we talk about every year with applicants, why do you want to be a neurosurgeon? What kind of physician are you? What do you see yourself doing in 10 years? Now, on top of all of that, you have to suss out the actual intentions of why the person is interviewing at your program and how they gamed out the system of letters and sub eyes, et cetera, et cetera. How does this affect your calculus? It's really weird because I'm sure you have the same issue in Chicago, which is everybody comes there to visit. They say they want to be there, right? They say, no, no, no. Yeah, I want to be here and I have a good reason for being here. But we know on the back end of this that that's not actually how it turns out, right? That there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, uh, sort of, uh, flirting with the idea, but it's not really that serious. And I've always wondered about that. And, and I guess programs do that too, right? We try to put our best foot forward, show the, the positives and not the warts uh, on the program as much. Um, it's really hard to figure this out now. Um, I think that the best and most valuable pieces of our process probably occur not inside the interview room, but when the residents spend time with the applicants and really get to know them. To me, that's, I always trust the residents. Whatever the residents say has the most value to me because that's, that's, uh, those are the people that are um, getting more of the truth, the reality out, right? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, that's encouraging to hear as a resident who always has opinions about these things that I hope is, or, you know, I hope my opinions are heard. But not only, I think, do we have more of a chance for an intimate setting and, and to see more behind the interview mask, but also we're, we're probably going to interact with whoever matches more than the attending, certainly for more minutes per day and days per year, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's encouraging to hear that you value the resident perspective so well. Um, what, what, I, what are the I things wonder, that, yeah, go, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I wonder if you had any good stories from this first interview day. Um, I'll, I'll tell you from the first rush day we just had, Everything went pretty well. Um, like I said, we didn't have any horror stories or big, you know, crazy red flags. I, I don't know if you could tell from my voice. I've had a cold this whole past week, so I wasn't at my typical 12 out of 10 energy level. And I kind of let the younger guys run the show this year for the, the touring and the interactions and the presentations and whatnot. But I'm sad to report I don't have any funny stories from our first in-person interview back. How about Miami? Oh, we had some some great times last night. We were uh, doing uh, karaoke uh, at my house, and so oh, we got oh, to no. guess, uh, 
yeah, we got to hear some of the some of the applicants rapping and singing. It was really a lot of fun. And and Did when we do this, by the way, I'm sorry. Did you do a song? No, no, no. I didn't do a song. I should have, but because uh, I can sing a little bit poorly. But uh, I love karaoke, and 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 you know the thing about it is when you know I have very little bearing on who gets selected in in our program and how we, you know, I don't really participate much in the ranking and all that. And I just want to be very open about that disclosure. Like people shouldn't feel like what I say really matters too much in Miami because you know we're we're very egalitarian here. And so I, I like to have more of like an open setting where people can just have fun. And, you know, we make a good impression on the applicants. And, you know, these these are, as, as you know, colleagues for life, right? It's not just yeah. about this interview. Like, I'm going to know these people for the next 30 years. Um, but, yeah, we had a lot of we had a swimming competition. It's, it's a lot of fun, right? There are a lot of fun things that we were doing. And, um, and I really enjoyed meeting these people because there's so much positive energy that comes forth. Uh, it's, it makes it makes it such an enjoyable experience, even for an old man like myself. I'm so old now. Um, <laughs> it makes me feel young again for a little bit. Um, but I wanted to ask you, like in general, like what, like if you could name your top three things you like to hear from applicants, and the top three things you you really don't like hearing from them. What 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 kind of things do they say to you as a resident, as a senior resident, that um, that strike a chord, positive or negative? Well, I, I think. Um... You know, if I could blow some smoke while I'm thinking of a good answer for you, it, it's obviously context dependent, and the time and setting and tone of a given question could either put it in the red flag or the green flag category, um, very much depending on who it is asking me and how they're asking it. Um, I I usually am turned off when people ask me about work life balance and uh, you know how what the hours are actually like. But again, there's a tone where someone can ask you, you know, like, Oh, how, how much do you all work? And and that's one thing versus somebody, their first thing they want to ask you about is, well, are the hours really bad. Do you stick to 80 hours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, and you know, that, that's an obvious answer, but um, some of the things that I appreciate more to focus on the positives when people ask us, in detail what the independence is like operating as a senior when people ask us what our graduates wind up going on to do in a um, mature way where they kind of appreciate the outcome of residency and and what kind of people our program tends to produce um and then it, it's very uncommon but sometimes i've i've had a chance to get into conversations with people especially last year when i was more intimately involved in our interview process about medical philosophy, morality, what kind of drives them as an individual more so than the technical aspects of our program and our training structure and things, but just kind of what makes them tick and, and their values that make them show up to work every day. That it, it takes more time to, you know, get to that level of the conversation and it takes more detail to, to suss it out. But that, that I think is some of the highest yield information somebody can give me. What about you? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think we like to see uh, thoughtfulness, um, and I don't want to divulge too much about what was said during our interviews. But I felt that uh, when when people were really thoughtful um, in in how they uh, explore this issue of what you're trusted with, which is patients' lives, right? Patients' mm. lives and limbs. The folks who have a, a depth of mature, maturity, or at least have put thought into what that means, um, I think I really like that. I mean, I know that you know. Um, most people have canned answers, 
but the great thing about in person is you can get a sense of of the emotion behind um, the thought process, and and I really enjoyed uh, seeing that in young people because it means that they're probably going to be great doctors. Um, but I, you know, I'm I'm really encouraged by the the incredible caliber of people. It makes me nervous about you know would I would I be able to match today? Um, you know the their CVs are just phenomenal. I mean, there was there was a guy who showed up with 186 publications. I wow. mean, that, and I'm not talking about someone who did like four PhDs either. Like, this is, I mean, the game is so high. It's almost. I don't want to have it discourage other people because that's not the only measure of a person, right? But that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, no matter how you slice that metric. Yeah, and I, I think um, like the Flynn effect that's seen with IQ scores going up every year and every generation, were you coming into the field in this generation, you know, not not you yourself today, just go back in time and plop yourself in, but if you came up in this field with this cohort of medical students, then that would be the norm. Or like how the, the world record for marathon time keeps decreasing each year. Once you see that someone can do it, you know that you can do it. And so they keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. So don't be too hard on yourself. If you were in, in medical school now, you'd you'd be uh, just as competitive as the rest of these people. But um, I will ask you because the idea of interview karaoke is very appealing to me. And perhaps come December for our uh, second interview day at Rush, if I'm not sick, I'll I'll have to institute this. So <laughs> you would have won, you, even if you didn't <laughs> sing. You said that you can do a little bit. So what is Mike Wang's go-to karaoke song? Oh yeah, I like to sing slow Southern. So I I like Elvis a lot. Uh, I like uh, slower, older country music because I can't hit the high notes. Uh, so I'm not a crooner in that sense. But you know, slow is good for me, uh, especially when we're usually drinking when we're singing in, in any setting. But um, no, it's 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 a it's a fun process. And I would just, as we close, encourage the applicants enjoy. Uh, don't be intimidated. Um, there's all kinds of neurosurgeons. We need different kinds of neurosurgeons, not just people who write papers, not just people who are good at surgery. We need, you know, political leaders. We need teachers. Um, and so everybody out there interviewing has special talents. And, you know, I, I know that JP, you and I try to encourage the folks out there because it can be discouraging, right? There, there are moments of bleakness. But uh, if there's anything we can do as um, folks that are fairly objective, JP and I, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We've had great emails over the last four years from applicants, from people who matched, people who didn't match. Um, it's it's just such a, a pleasure and it's an honor to be uh, trusted with some of, the, some of the things that people have asked of us. So, you know, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, everyone can always reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to look backward at some of our old interview season content and the residency program spotlights, but obviously pay attention to the feed as we go through the next few months and the interview process unfolds. We'll be checking in periodically to see how things are going around the country. And I will echo Dr. Wang, if anyone has questions during the process, after the process, wants help or advice, you can reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. We are here for you always. Thank you for listening and best of luck on the trail. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.